As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, you're listening to the Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. With me this week, Michael Cox and Tom Warville. I'm Ali Maxwell. And on this episode, we're going to talk about Manchester City, whose Premier League title was confirmed on Tuesday night. And this is our Zonal Marking style dissection of their victorious campaign. Yeah, they've run away with it. And, uh, you know, the first half of the season, it seemed it was going to be very tight. We were going to have a really good title fight between a few clubs. But their form over December, January, February just meant they ran away with it. And uh, yeah, in the end, it hasn't really gone down to an uh, Aguero moment on the final day, has it? Uh, They've been quite comfortable. Sam Lee, of course, covers Manchester City for The Athletic. His coverage is detailed and fantastic. So look out for the definitive piece on site. Tom and Michael, I'm no doubt, will contribute in their own ways in written form. But here is our ZM-style dissection of their campaign. Michael, an easy one to ease you in. What are the key tactical differences between this Manchester City team and the last time they won the title two seasons ago in 2018-19? I feel like it's a, you know, lots of differences. I feel like it's almost a, a completely different side. There's a difference in terms of, you know, the way that they use width. I thought of that side as, as having a lot of permanent width high up the pitch. The wing is not really coming inside. This is a little bit of a different situation. There's a difference in terms of the centre forward. I mean, that side depended upon Sergio Aguero up front. This side doesn't really have a defined goal scorer, has uh, relied on lots of goals from different sources. And I just think it's a bit more flexible, more versatility of players, more systems. I think more unpredictable in terms of the way that they line up. We always think of Guardiola as being very experimental with his systems. But I think throughout that 2018-19 season, actually there was a pretty consistent formation and a pretty familiar starting eleven. This season, I think it's been a lot more chopping and changing. And I think even now, we're relatively content that we know roughly City's best starting eleven. But the positions that they play can change dramatically from week to week. So, yeah, for me, really a very different side. There were a lot of questions at the start of the season about whether Guardiola could rebuild a team. He'd never really done that from scratch before. And to a certain extent, I think he's done that this season. So tactically, visually, I, I guess to an extent, in terms of width, especially 
clearly different to two seasons ago. And Tom, I'm interested to know how visible these differences are looking at the stats, looking at the data. Yeah, what we've seen a lot with City this year is actually just kind of them slowing down, taking their foot off the pedal uh, from a lot of kind of different angles. I mean, the main one that we've seen of late is that the speed of which they move the ball upfield and look to attack opponents has got to the lowest point of, I think, any team in the Premier League in the last three seasons. And that's gone down and down and down since roughly uh, after the West Brom game where I think Pep at that point has said in a press conference he doesn't like his team. Um, and, and from that, we've kind of seen some changes to to the way they play, but that was also the start of that uh, epic unbeaten run, sorry. And we've also seen that they're far better now at defending as well. And the, the attack is really taking a foot off the gas. I mean, we look at, uh, in terms of expected goals for City in games under Pep, and this is the worst attacking side that City have had, but the best defensive side. So I think all those things together, it's it's quite interesting. You've got this kind of confluence of, this isn't the team of 18-19 that were kind of blowing teams away. I think there's a more of an element of kind of a bit of game management in there and just restricting opponents from really creating much at all. And that has been maybe an unexpected evolution of uh, of Pep City, maybe we would have thought they'd press on and go even further, but actually they've they've regressed a bit on the uh, on the attacking front. And some of these changes and improvements, certainly on the defensive end, have come during the season. Michael, we spoke to Sam Lee on this podcast in mid October. They were a few games into their campaign. It hadn't started well, and that was the last time we've spoken about them in depth. And it was mostly wondering how they needed to improve and how likely that improvement was. They started with three wins, three draws and two defeats. They'd conceded 11 goals in eight games, most notably five in one game against Leicester City. Since then, they've only conceded 15 in their next 27 league games. What are the key factors in that defensive improvement? Yeah, I mean, it is remarkable how how different our tone is and our content is speaking about them now compared to then. I think I've probably done two things particularly well in a defensive sense. One, I think their structure without the ball has improved so they're stopping counter-attacks through the middle. I mean, I remember that 5-2 defeat to Leicester. Obviously, Jamie Vardy was running right on the, on the break there, but they're playing almost like a 3-1-6 in possession, which was very different to what Guardiola had done in the last couple of seasons. Usually, you'd have five players in deep positions, either 3-2 or 2-3. So to see them only playing one holding midfielder in front of three centre-backs was very odd. I don't quite know why that happened. They've sorted that side of things. I think, obviously, Cancelo moving inside from fullback to become an extra central midfielder has, has played a part in that. And the other thing is they found a, a really reliable centre-back partnership with uh, with Diaz and, um, and Stones, which... We've almost come to take for granted, but I think at the start of the season, if he's you know if you've been asked to name one city defender you think would would be a regular, you would have said Laporte, and Laporte obviously has been on the fringes of things. So that's that's really changed things, and that's a very classic centre back partnership, I think, isn't it? Obviously, a very classy player in Stones and a very solid one in, in Diaz, and I think it's the best centre back partnership that City have had in in this era of success. They obviously had company there for a number of years, who often was very good individually. But I don't think he ever had a partnership as good as this. He played all right with Torre, all right with Les Scott. But, I mean, when you put it alongside the likes of Dimichelis and Otamendi, I think they struggled to, to really play alongside him. And we haven't seen really many errors at all this season. A couple from Stones in recent weeks, to be fair. But from from where he was this time last year, I think Stones' improvement has been considerable. I wanted to kind of pick up there on Michael's point about 
defending against the counter-attack because that's something really quite interesting from a, a chance quality point of view and the, the chances that City concede. So, I mean, last season, the average XG of the chances that they conceded was 0.13, which is, I think, the highest in the league at that point and just showing how if teams could get a chance on City, they'd really break through and it'd be a great one. And this season, it's just under 0.09 XG per, per chance conceded. And that is around league average and shows that there's been a huge improvement that they've shaved you know, 4% off the average chance that they concede, which, I mean, that's huge, really. And considering they actually, they concede half a shot less a game, which, I mean, for City anyway, they don't really concede shots, but that difference in quality is is giant and arguably, you know, while they're the best defensive side we've seen in the last the last few seasons. Uh, that's interesting to me, Tom, because I, I've always considered one of the, not the laws, but uh, something of an underlying numbers rule is that often the teams who press the highest up the pitch you'll see a link with their XG per shot conceded uh, in terms of that being quite high. I, I remember going to a stats bomb presentation where they discussed this, you know, the theory. Uh, b- but I should say quite often those teams were facing fewer shots. So it was press high as long as you do it well tends to lead to fewer shots faced but higher quality shots. And that kind of, I- I'm interested to know... Have City done anything in terms of pressing or in terms of the how high their line is defensively in order to bring that XG per shot down? Are they are they pressing the life out of teams or have they eased off in order to improve on that front? Yeah, they've definitely eased off. And I mean, it's something we've touched on this pod before about a lot of teams in the Premier League this season have, have really eased off in their intensity when it comes to, to pressing. But I mean, when Pep arrived at City, their, their PPDA in that first season was 8.3 passes um, before they attempted to stick a leg in which is really high and that's one of the highest figures we've seen in the Premier League maybe ever and this season it's dropped down to it's just above league average at 11.6 but far down from what it is what it was before and obviously that's around three extra passes before they look to stick a leg in so I think for City this year what we've seen more of is that they're I think they're like applying the the higher press less and less and I think that's due to saving legs, the effect of the, the number of fixtures, the, the lack of rest between fixtures and the rotation. And they've actually just kind of like dropped to maybe pressing in the middle a bit more and, and dropping deeper at times. And I think that we saw that really nicely against PSG recently, obviously not a Premier League game, but we saw there were times when they could really pin PSG back and press really high up. And then other times where they would just sit back and uh, and recede a bit and you know be ready to go on the counter and I think just that shows a remarkable level of intelligence from the players to be able to kind of just flip that on and off and it's something we're starting to see now we saw it at the weekend with um with Tuchel and Chelsea as well so yeah I'm, I'm really interested the kind of the way that City have adapted their press instead of trying to just smother opponents uh when they're out of possession it's interesting isn't it Michael it's sort of whether by function of this season schedule uh, and the general drop-off in pressing or by design because Pep noticed that or Pep decided that this would be the right thing to do in order to improve them defensively. Uh, Actually it felt like a given that Guardiola sides would always press very high up the pitch and with intensity but in easing off a little bit they've fixed one of their major problems. Yeah I think that's a good way of putting it and I think they've you know he's always liked his sides to press but I've never I've never thought he's he's ever had a side that's primarily about pressing. You know, he's always talked about, I mean, this is going back to the Barcelona days, but he's always talked about pressing being important because, you know, his side weren't good in traditional defensive areas. And I think what has changed, well, one thing has changed is they are now, I think, quite good in traditional defensive areas because of Diaz. 
But it was never, I don't think they ever depended upon pressing for their chance creation, as for example, Liverpool have done. So, yeah, I've, I've always thought with Guardiola's size, the pressing is almost a bonus. They do so much well with the ball. The pressing is something that comes afterwards. And uh, yeah, they've, they've been a very good side, even, even despite not pressing high. Not quite the press being their best playmaker because they've got plenty of those as well. Michael, I'd, I'd like to ask about how they create chances, the, the sort of general patterns of play in the final third. We talked a little bit about how they look very different to the Manchester City of two seasons ago. Uh, and Tom mentioned that they're a lot slower in possession. What have you seen uh, as their general patterns of play in the final third and how they go about creating chances? Well, I think they're less predictable than uh, than they have been previously. I think they've got more routes of attack and I think that's partly why they've done so well. I think they've found the right balance between um, having goal-scoring threats out wide but also having width, natural width out wide. So there was one game earlier in the season where they drew one all against Leeds and actually got really battered in the second half. Probably lucky to get away with the draw. And they were just internally, the wide players were coming inside and having shots. There was, I think Mares on the right, Bernardo Silva was to the right and on the left, you had De Bruyne and maybe Torres, I think, on the left, or maybe Sterling. Um, and it was just so predictable. They were always going through the middle, and Leeds were continually blocking the shots. I think when you look at Mahrez's performance, particularly in recent months, he's he's a great example of how they found the balance. Because Mahrez, we know, is quite an individualistic player. He wants to come inside. He wants to shoot with his left foot. But when you look at his starting position, it's really, really high, really wide. And I think he understands that when he hasn't got the ball at his feet, He's got a job to do with with stretching the play and creating space in that channel for Bernardo or uh, Kevin De Bruyne, whoever it is. So that's just one thing I think where they've got the balance right, and uh, and I think balance is the word because I don't think this is a side with real defined characteristics in terms of how they score goals. It's not the Sané and and Sterling squaring to each other for tap ins. It's not De Bruyne completely dominating from that right hand channel as he did couple of years ago or even last season I think it's a lot more unpredictable the interesting thing with De Bruyne this season if you go back and watch a lot of his assists is like Michael was saying there's not really a theme to a lot of them there's not like a constant pattern and and that to me shows that just the I guess the tactical structure that City have mean that they can just create chances from from any situation really I guess when you have someone like De Bruyne who's so technically excellent you've had kind of the long floated balls in from deep I think there's a, a couple for Stones or Diaz at some point in the season where De Bruyne's just put it in from you know not too far from the halfway and they've attacked it and, and they've scored there's then the goal against Southampton where he whips in kind of a very traditional De Bruyne across um, and then there's kind of more kind of build up and, uh, and combination play in the centre to then create a chance from that so I think that's been that's been really interesting that they've they've had many different I guess faces this season many different ways of, of creating and scoring um, but if we look at the numbers around kind of City how they've looked to build up and, and create shots from their possessions Ali you mentioned before about kind of efficiency in possession and how um, you know, City have, have largely changed their shape quite a lot, but their attacking numbers in terms of XG has gone down. What we see is that they're converting possession into shots, roughly 6% um, less or 6%. They're turning possession into shots um, 6% less of the time compared to last season. So last season, 42% of their possessions were turned into shots. This season, it's 36%, which is just above league average. It's, no, it's nothing spectacular. So there's an interesting thing there around, you know, efficiency they've slowed the game down a lot and this is probably all linked you know they've slowed the game down teams are probably better able to defend 
against City because they can see them coming. They know how to, to bunker and defend against it. City have still found a way, but they're nowhere near as efficient and ruthless as they were last season and, and dare I say the seasons before that as well. That unpredictability that Michael mentioned earlier, clearly playing a, a key role then. Uh, uh, one big aspect of their attacking play, and very noticeable in its absence, has been a, a striker, uh, a reliable number nine type. Uh, uh, in terms of playing without a striker without a, a dedicated goal scorer, I guess, because Gundogan is currently their top scorer with 12 league goals. Michael, how rare is this in the context both of Pep Guardiola's previous sides and past Premier League champions? Yeah, very different. I mean, I think we've, t- we've come to take it for granted and people have said, well, Guardiola's always tried to play without strikers. He did it at Barcelona. But, I mean, he did it at Barcelona in a completely different way. One, he had Messi, who's been the greatest goal scorer of the the world has seen over the last decade or so and often had two really clinical wide players um, going in behind. The likes of David Veer and Thierry Henry and Samuel Eto'o were prolific number nines in, in different sides. So it's very different from that. You know, he doesn't have anything like a, a dedicated centre forward. And yet, I mean, compared to previous Premier League sides, there's a couple worth mentioning. I mean, in 13-14, City's, City won the league and their top goal scorer was Yaya Toure got over 20 goals, but they did have Jekyll and Aguero, who I think got 16, 17 each. Chelsea, 2004-2005, their top goal scorer was Frank Lampard from midfield. But that was because Drogba and uh, and Good Johnson were kind of rotating as the front two. 13. Lampard, their top scorer with 13 goals. It feels very low, that. Yeah, I mean, they didn't score too many, did they, for for title winners? So, yeah, that's for me, they're completely different situations. They're situations where the the centre forward is rotated or has had a period out injured. Where this really is, I mean, Guardiola has centre-forwards at his disposal and is choosing not to use them. And I thought it was very funny to watch their approach against Chelsea uh, on Saturday, where Guardiola basically picks an eleven solely dependent upon the fact he was picking players who didn't play in his first-choice side for the game against PSG and ended up with Aguero and Jesus up front as a strike partnership. And then Sterling and Torres as basically number eights. I mean, they're the, they're the four players that could conceivably play as something like a centre-forward. And Guardiola was just shoving him on the pitch because obviously they're not in his first-choice side. And you ended up with one of the weirdest situations I've, I've ever seen in terms of a tactical setup. But yeah, it is very different, I think, from any previous Premier League champion. Very different from what Guardiola has done in the future. Uh, sorry, in the past. I'm not sure it will be how they play in the future. I think he will want a prolific centre-forward. But we'll have to wait and see on that. But the selection of, of Gundogan for a time in that central attacking role, I, I, I'm loath to call it as a striker. That was a bit of a masterstroke, right? At, at a kind of a key part of their season, Gundogan's goals fired them on. Yeah, I think I'm right saying he won Premier League Player of the Month twice in a row, which is very rare. His runs have been sensational. I mean, I think that's the thing that I've really, really been impressed by. His, it's not just the timing of it. I think it's when he changes direction, he understands when to go on the blind, blind side of defenders. It's obviously had a big impact uh, for the goals, but also just in, in getting into dangerous situations. He won a penalty against Tottenham, I think, from a Hoiberg tackle with a really good run. And that's something we haven't really seen before. I mean, he'd never been prolific. He'd been a, a deep player who could move forward. And I think he's one of the players who, at times, he's played in completely different roles. At times, like you say, Ali, he's been a, a basically a goal-scoring midfielder, almost a, a forward in a way. But for example, in the first leg of the, the game against PSG where City won 2-1 and really it was Guardiola's changes at half-time that meant that they won the game, he went from playing that role to playing as a real deep-line playmaker. And and that's the type of vers- versatility that I think almost gets overlooked, you know, because they're broadly speaking two midfield positions, but 
there's very few players in the world I think who could play both those roles to, to such an, uh, you know such a high level one of the pieces I've been working on um, you know about City's title winning season is the kind of passes that, that won them the title similar to a piece I did last season with, with Liverpool and Gundogan's profile for me was really interesting where and I didn't realise he's one of the kind of safest passes in the Premier League so for someone who is so attacking and offers so much threat. I think he has like the fourth easiest profile in terms of like the the difficulty of the passes he makes, which you know it's intriguing that he gets into all these runs and all these positions. But that actually, really, is only a a slither of his game based on everything else that he does on the ball. He's not a an overly penetrative passer. He's someone who kind of knocks it off and passes and moves more than he's someone who can you know is, is technically excellent and can thread a pass between two or three players like De Bruyne can so yeah interesting I definitely agree with Michael he's you know someone who can sit at the back and, and dictate and maybe more play the kind of the Jorginho role and keep it simple but then at times flip the switch make one run and it's just one move one sequence of play which creates a creates a goal and yeah for them I don't think that he'll replicate that form I think he's He's been a bit fortunate in some of the goals he scored, but the timing of the runs and his ability to find space in the box this season has been has been really, really good to watch. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Now, we very much purposefully haven't mentioned the Champions League final against Chelsea yet. I have a funny feeling that in two weeks' time, we will be going much more in-depth on that. So I'm, I'm trying to hold off. But there is a question about City's best eleven, And sometimes I, I think that uh, there's a little too much focus on a manager's best eleven. Uh, it always seems to be focused on when a manager's not doing well and very rarely when they are doing well. But any fantasy football managers know the pain of trying to second-guess Pep's team selection. I, I want to ask if we can accurately guess their best eleven, or rather their likely Champions League final team. Uh, Tom, I'm going to tell you to tell me what you think that eleven is. And then maybe Michael can tell us, I guess, what the key questions are, what the key battles are for for, for those in contention. Okay. Um, so I think Edison and goal is, is one we can all agree on. I think for... It's always so hard, isn't it? I guess that's why we've got <laughs> we've got Michael um, questioning some of the choices afterwards. But I think probably Carl Walker right back, Stones and Diaz are given... I think Zinchenko is just a very, very underrated player and so dependable in, in possession. And again, someone who I saw passing under pressure, he's just phenomenal, really. One of the one of the best players in the league, arguably, and he doesn't really get enough credit for that. Gundogan, Rodri, Kevin De Bruyne in midfield, uh, Mares uh, on one side, Foden on the other, just because it's worked so well in recent matches. And then I think you're probably going to see Jesus up front. I mean, you could try and make the case for Sterling, but you know he's fallen out of favour recently, and, and probably isn't as um, match sharp to to go in that that number nine slot. Really, I personally, I'd be surprised if Sterling or Jesus started. I think he'll go with Bernardo and Kevin De Bruyne as pretty much the front two, with Mares and Foden in the wide positions. I think it's probably two debates 
One is Zinchenko against Cancelo. Cancelo, I mean, he'd be in my Premier League team of the year, and I think he might miss out on the Champions League final because of how well they did in the semis. I think Walker will Walker will start because of his pace, especially his pace against Werner, I think could be a real factor. And the other issue is Rodri against Fernandinho. I'm not sure how that one will go. I, think, I thought Fernandinho was brilliant in the games against PSG, particularly the second leg where he just made it as scrappy as possible which was exactly really what they needed. So yeah, I, I think it will be pretty similar to the side against PSG. There was an interesting article on a rival content website this week by Philip Lahm. Um, and he said that when Guardiola, when it comes to big game, Guardiola once said to him, for the big games, I just choose my best 11. Which I must say, I'm not convinced, but having looked through a few of his big, I'm not sure that is true. But I kind of think that it will be true for this final. I'm not sure there'll be that many surprises in terms of um, in terms of the actual personnel on the team sheet. As always, I think the surprises will come from the positioning of the players. I think the position of De Bruyne has been very difficult to, to predict. I think he basically goes where Guardiola thinks the opposition is weakest. So he could be inside left rather than inside right, for example. But uh, yeah, I think the, the front six from the PSG second leg, I think, will start again. So your gut's telling you, Michael, that where some might look back at last season's Champions League defeat to Lyon and wonder if, if perhaps Pep could be spooked a little by those two recent defeats to Chelsea in the Premier League with that heavily rotated side, but also in that FA Cup semi-final, you're more of the opinion that uh, that Pep, you know, unlikely to go rogue this time. Yeah, it was heavily rotated last week and actually quite heavily rotated for the FA Cup semi-final as well. I think there will probably be only four players in common with the FA Cup semi and probably only two players in common with the game last week one of whom will be Edison so yeah I don't think those games really have any bearing on what will happen um, in the Champions League final but I do appreciate that people like to use the phrase dress rehearsal (laughs) so uh, we felt duty bound to to Try and take some lessons from it, but I, I'm not sure I'm that person. Well, that's our dress rehearsal for our Champions League final preview pod in two weeks' time. Uh, let's talk about some of the individual players that we haven't touched on in depth already. I think we've spoken about Mares and, and Gundogan. Uh, let's get back to Ruben Diaz. Uh, he, Tom Warville, has made quite the impact, has he not? Yeah, he, he has and he hasn't. I think that he's definitely made a massive impact in the way that people see a lot of the work that he does and and he gets credit for that because it's easier to to judge a player on you know the blocks he makes and and the clearances and and the very obvious tangible things that that you know you see when you're watching a football match rather than the things that aren't there or the things that he 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 doesn't do um you know he doesn't tackle a lot doesn't intercept a lot doesn't really go for aerials a lot and, and doesn't win them at a high rate either but he was i mean diaz for for me is a very interesting player because any kind of way you try and slice it with data and obviously this is the, a perfect example why data doesn't tell you the full story is that uh, this you know he doesn't always show up as a as a great defender and he's not amazing at one-on-one duels on the ground not a great aerial jeweler and even if we look at a couple of the algorithms that um, smarter scout have who obviously we use on the site a fair amount which looks at how a side can progress the ball in the areas where a defender is we see diaz doesn't cover a huge area doesn't do a lot of defending doesn't have a lot of opportunities to defend but when he does he's a he's actually a very solid one so maybe there's a a bit of insight from it there but um he's someone who i got a, a fair bit of stick for early in the season by giving him a, a b plus uh, when grading his performances just based on data and obviously would uh, would change that now and probably bump him up to a to an a and a plus just because he has been really solid and maybe you know we've spoken about partnerships a, a bit recently and and you know 
we've seen at for City this season, they don't actually concede a lot of shots. The quality of shots is far lower. Him and Stones have had a great partnership, and you know he a lot of the intangibles that he brings to the team, the the communication, the leadership that we hear about, the leadership both on the pitch and in the dressing room has led to them, you know, really not conceding a lot of chances. So, yeah, Diaz really good. You can see a lot of the work he does, and I think that's probably because of the way that Pep's created the system, which means that his strengths are, you know, on show a lot, and his weaknesses aren't really exposed. And yeah, he's been a, a really, really good signing for City. And I think one thing that maybe gets overlooked a little bit is that he's still only 23, which is kind of frightening because he's just going to improve and improve from this point onwards. So. Um, yeah, arguably the signing of the season for me. A plus. Michael, signing of the season for Tom, but also being talked about as a potential player of the year for the for the Premier League would be unusual for a centre-back to win that. Do you think he merits that? Uh, I didn't vote for him, so no. But yeah, it sounds like just from listening to who people have voted for, certainly in the Journalist Award, sounds like he's on course for it. I mean, Van Dijk has won it in, in the past couple of years. So yeah, unusual for a centre-back, but... He has made a big impact and also in terms of things like leadership and organisation, which I know are maybe not necessarily the things we chat about on this podcast, but I think they are tangible and, and probably City did need that. You know, that was the one thing he couldn't fault about company. He did bring that sense to their defence and, uh, and maybe Stones and Laporte as a partnership didn't have that. But uh, yeah, Diaz has been excellent and I think it's difficult really to find any other contender for the signing of the season. I just think he's, in that respect, he's out in front. Let's move on to another star, you have to say, of Manchester City's season and someone else kind of um, playing an unusual role in many ways, and that's Joao Cancelo. Tom, did he make it into our unique FC? I don't think he did, but he can't have been far off. I don't think he did either, but um, he's definitely in with a a good shout just because yeah his his role is quite is, is quite unique unique there we go again but yeah he, he's played more of a halfback at times obviously this is something we spoke about recently on our kind of defender glossary where you know, he lines up as a fullback but then will come inside and form kind of or look like a bit of a midfielder if you were just to look at it and, and not know who the players were and just look at the positions that, that they're in and that's been really interesting one of the more obvious kind of tactical innovations this season with uh, with Guardiola um, but the biggest difference I mean we've seen him do this before with uh, I guess with Alaba with, with Kimmich with Zinchenko as well it was probably you know the first halfback we really saw at City but the main thing with Cancelo is A he's he's been able to play on both the left and the right side and been really adept on both sides but then also just creatively his output's been fantastic in open play I mean he's created the most chances in open play had the most touches in the box uh, and the most shots of any fullback per 90 minute or on a kind of per 90 minute basis which yeah I guess you he makes those surging runs as well doesn't it yeah I think that's a really nice thing as well and it's something that yeah, if you look at kind of some ball progression metrics that it shows up really nicely where you know he gets the ball upfield into dangerous positions but again as a fullback it, you'd expect that stuff from the wings are from crossing and less so from drifting into you know central areas in this zone 14 area outside the box and, and actually doing things with the ball from there so yeah very I mean I think he's a really fun player to watch there's some level of kind of it's quite erratic at times but then you see him do things like the really nice outside the ball passes or just completely unopposed and pressured and will just start you know ball rolling while he's dribbling which is just you don't really see players do things like that it's probably they've picked it up you know, as a as a kid, and it's one of those things that have stayed in their game. So, yeah, I've really watched, enjoyed watching Cancelo this season. And my only gripe would be that I get the reasons why Pep chops and rotates and changes for different tactical purposes, but I would 
far preferred to see him playing perhaps on the right than, than Walker is just because of mm. the added spark that he gives to the side. Michael, we know that Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson have created a lot of chances over the last few seasons from that fullback position nominally, but that is something that stands out so much when it comes to Cancelo. And it, it's quite an enjoyable piece of just development of, of, of football over the last few years at the top level. Elite creators creating from unusual positions. Yeah, certainly Cancelo. I mean, he's he's actually a decent crosser at times, but actually it's been his, at times, almost De Bruyne-esque passes from from the channels that has been fantastic. Yeah, he's been brilliant to watch. Like I say, it's um, it's very strange. He's, I think he'll miss out on the Champions League final 11, even though he's probably been City's best fullback over the course of the season. But uh, I think tactically, you know, just as Laporte, you could argue, was was probably in a strong position at the start of the season and has fallen out of favour because of tactical reasons and there's a good partnership elsewhere. I think Cancelo's in a, a similar kind of situation, but I've really loved watching him. I think he's been brilliant. I also really like his obsession with taking a throw-in, getting a return pass and trying to play like a 60-yard cross-field ball to the opposite side <laughs> of the pitch, often with the outside of his foot, which usually goes well and sometimes goes wrong, but is always just quite entertaining. Tell me about Phil Foden, guys, because... Uh subjectively I haven't been this excited about a football player for an awfully long time I'm interested to know I guess a little more objectively how his role has developed over the season and how his impact has developed over the this season it feels like the last month has been Phil Foden's month and therefore it feels like the next few months both in terms of the Champions League and potentially the Euros as well could be Phil Foden months how have you tracked all of this Michael what can you tell me about Foden's season well, I mean, he's he's been very good. I think it's worth pointing out that as you know, as we're recording, he's only actually started fifteen Premier League games. A lot of people are putting him in their team of the season, but I think Tom would call that recency bias or something along those lines. But yeah, I mean, since Christmas, he's been exceptional. I think that the the four one win over Liverpool that was when I realised that he was a really top class player. I mean, he he completely dominated that game. He, I think he did he start. He played about four different roles in that game. I think he started as the as a central striker and then moved to the left, then moved to the right. Bit of a time as the number 10. He can play anywhere. And um, he's technically brilliant. His, his ability to receive the ball on the turn is just fantastic. I know people will you know, be reluctant to hear this comparison and I'm sure it can be used out of context. But I think he's very similar to Iniesta in the way that he plays. And Guardiola, of course... You know, got the best from Iniesta at Barcelona and maybe people forget how much Iniesta played from the left at Barcelona, particularly in the big games when Guardiola wanted to beef up in the midfield with someone a little bit stronger. So he's, I don't know what his best position is. Tom might have some views on that, but uh, wherever he's played, I've really enjoyed watching him. Yeah, interesting that you said about Iniesta-esque. There's that goal against West Ham at the London Stadium where I think he receives it in the box and turns really sharply and pokes it in kind of the, the near post and that for me, for some reason, really sticks in my mind is something that just looked very Iniesta-y at times. But yeah, I'm intrigued that he's been more of a winger this season than a than a kind of centre mid or a, you know free eight is what I think De Bruyne originally coined the term. But I, I'm I'm excited to see him play that role a little bit more just because you get him running it at players from central areas. That's where we've seen again from the the recent PSG matches. Just it's just so good to watch him running past one, two, three players, getting a shot off or, or trying to create a chance in the box. And I think that that will probably be his longer-term position. Gundogan and De Bruyne are 28-29, and you've got Foden, who's literally, I think, only just turning 21. So I think that you know we've got a career's worth of, of Foden's minutes to come, and I just think that longer-term we will 
probably see him move to that that central area. And yeah, I'm I'm definitely excited for that. One of the obstacles that Guardiola has had to overcome is is the absence of his best player, Kevin De Bruyne, who has played 60% of total Premier League minutes this season. Michael, how have they coped on those occasions where De Bruyne has been absent? I'd say strength in numbers, really. I mean, you know, that's part of the beauty of having this rotating cast of, you know, five attacking midfielders at times. Everyone has uh, contributed in terms of goals. Everyone's contributed in terms of assists. Bernardo Silva quietly has had a, a pretty good season in a similar kind of zone of the pitch that De Bruyne often plays, albeit he's left-footed rather than right-footed, doesn't pass the ball over such long distances. But yeah, it's changed a lot. There were games at the start of the season when De Bruyne was playing as number 10 and I thought City just looked completely reliant on him. You know, he was shooting too much, um, obviously was the main assister. And um, yeah, again, it's remarkable how much they've changed probably before December, after December. I'd say uh, quite a crucial bit in that change was... I think the six games leading up to West Brom, Gabriel Jesus started all six up front. I think he only scored one goal. And from then he had a period out with, with COVID initially and then just didn't regain his place. And that has transformed the side. They played, you know, without a striker. And I think the more attacking midfielders they've had, the more, the less they've been uh, reliant on De Bruyne. Yeah, it's something we've seen in the numbers actually, where uh, I think up until Christmas, a third of City's chances were created by by De Bruyne himself, which was even when you adjust that for kind of only when he's on the pitch, there's still a third of the attack came from him. And after Christmas, that's dropped to about a fifth, so it's dropped quite substantially. Um, and I think Foden's now the the kind of chief chance creator in that time. So interesting to see that you know at the start it very much was De Bruyne's team, and he was the one trying to drag them through this really quite poor start to the season. And then after that, it's been you know shared out a bit more. And I think that that really shows that when Guardiola's system is 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 fit and firing and, and working well. You don't, you know, the the system, the team creates the chances. It's not just a, an individual who who needs that. So, um, yeah, interesting that uh, Michael's observations match up with the stats. <laughs> that is nice. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. They, they regain their Premier League title and, well, I think we all know that a lot of the narrative around this season will depend on what happens against Chelsea in the Champions League final in two weeks' time. But in in terms of looking forward and how they evolve and strengthen from here, specifically in terms of the recruitment of players this summer, not a squad that lacks depth or quality, you have to say, but I'm interested to know, Tom, if there are areas of the squad you think they should or just definitely will look to improve on. Yeah, I think a striker, as Michael's points to earlier, is something that long-term they need, even when they're thinking past Pep. Um, there's a few good options on the market right now. I mean, Haaland, Haaland is one. I think Isaac as well at Sociedad is another interesting interesting option. And then, of course, Inter are having financial issues. And if you can get Lukaku even close to you know, 10% of what he's worth is such good value in, in the long run. So, yeah, I think a, a striker is, is key to the system. I should probably mention Harry Kane as well, just because that would be a very intriguing fit, trying to fit him and De Bruyne 
in the in the team together. We could probably do a whole pod on that subject in total. Um, but yeah, so then I think that Zinchenko or you know a, a replacement or a alternative to Zinchenko would be interesting. Probably not a replacement. He's too good for that. But um, I don't think Mendy has been reliable. Um, I think that. You know when he's come in, he's looked good, but it's you don't get enough minutes of him on the field. So perhaps someone there would would be interesting. And then left centre back as well. You know if if Laporte goes, Nathan Ake is a really weird one this season. Where I think I I probably hyped up. You know why teams like perhaps use left centre backs and really like left centre backs. And they signed him for quite a lot of money from a relegated side. Then he's played what sub five hundred minutes this season. So that's a. An interesting one that they may look to strengthen again, and I think that Pau Torres is a, is a name that's been linked to there, the uh, the Villarreal um, defender. So yeah, a few a few positions there, but the marquee one, the main one to get right, both for next season to stay competitive, to arguably make this side a better attacking force, similar to the the recent City sides, um, and to stave off the threat of Chelsea. Really, is uh, is a striker for me. Michael, you're not a big transfers guy, but uh, any thoughts on that? No, I think the, the striker thing is a fact. I mean, it's worth remembering at the start of this campaign. We thought they were going to sign Lionel, Lionel Messi. You know, so <laughs> if there's if there's a big player on offer, clearly they're interested, even if it's not necessarily in a position that they require someone. But I do think they require a striker. Um, the centre back thing is interesting. I mean, they've got they've got four very much senior professionals on the books at the moment. That's been quite unusual for Guardiola, and it's interesting that Tom mentions Ake hasn't played that much because that's partly why Guardiola hasn't always wanted two backup centre backs. He's usually been happy to move, you know, in City's case, someone like Rodri, someone like Fernandinho back into defence. It'd be interesting to see whether he changes his mind, whether the experience of Liverpool lacking any centre backs this season means that he's um you know, more inclined to to, to uh, stock up on centre backs, um, but yeah, it'll be it'd be interesting to see how they evolve. I think uh, I think they've got a pretty good squad, and and I would say it's maybe the obvious thing to say compared to some of the other big clubs because City are going to win the league. But I'm not looking at the squad and thinking there's loads of players they've got to move on. You know, there'll be a couple of departures. Obviously, Aguero is going to be one of them, but by and large, I think this is the kind of squad that can can challenge for next season without too many major additions. Okay, uh, and just like the moment in a reality show where you get voted off and they show you your best bits, I'd like to know what your most memorable Man City performances have been this season. Which games really represented this season's Manchester City the best? When were they in full flow, Michael? Yeah, that 4-1 against Liverpool for me, they, they played them off the park. Obviously, Liverpool are not the force they were last season but it was against the defending champions and I always think there's something symbolic when you inflict a big victory over the side I still think of as their their major rivals even if they're not there in the table and like I said it was the game where I realised that Foden was capable of uh, starring on on the biggest stage against the best opponents so yeah I don't think it's been a a particularly memorable season for the Premier League as a whole Uh, you know it's been unenjoyable without fans and the rest of it but that's one performance that stands out for me the Champions League fixtures against Dortmund and PSG I think were were, were pretty enjoyable especially the PSG ties that was those are some of the best games of the season for me just a great array of um, of players and technical ability on show it was just really 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 good to watch Um, but I I also just enjoy big shellackings of teams at times and I think the the 5-0 victory over Burnley was uh, was a really fun one and I think that uh, I think I'm right in saying that was a game where Mares maybe scored a couple, um, and just him on his day, kind of reminding everyone that he's still a very, very good attacking force in the Premier League is uh, is always good to watch. So um, 
yeah, it's not been a season full of games like that. So I'll, I'll cherish the couple that um, City have had this season. And Michael, the season in general, you know, probably quite a good reminder for us, especially after that podcast we did four games in, not to question Pep Guardiola too much, right? Yeah, I think it's true. But uh, I mean, it was it was a funny one because they were generally really bad at times up until that West Brom game. You know, I don't think it was people going OTT on how bad they were. They were properly mid-table for a lot of the season, albeit with a, a game or two in hand. So, yeah, they've been they've been excellent after Christmas. I tend to think too, people remember, a little bit like with the Foden thing we mentioned, people tend to remember title winners just the run-in, just the second half of the campaign. And I think from that, city, this city will be remembered as a really good side. But I must say, uh, I don't think they're really on the level of the title winners we've seen in, in, in recent years. But this was a really difficult season physically. And I think it was just about doing the job and, and they've won it at a canter at the end. So you have to give them full credit to them for that. And of course, the Champions League final will be the subject of this podcast in two weeks time. We've got a really fun episode lined up for you next week. I'm not going to give too much away, but just some end of season awards in zonal marking style. Cannot wait for that one. Thank you so much to Tom Warville, to Michael Cox for joining me on this week's zonal marking podcast. They are continuing to beaver away on the athletic site uh, as the season draws to a close. The content does not take a hit in terms of quality. If anything, it gets better. So if you're not a subscriber of The Athletic and you'd like to read all the stuff that they're writing on site, as well as all of the good articles by their talented and hardworking colleagues, then theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is the place to visit. You can sign up for an annual subscription and for the first six months, you'll pay just £3.99. But that's it from us this week. Thanks as ever for joining us. It'd be great to hear from you on social media if you have any follow-up questions or any suggestions for future episodes. Join us again next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast.